Good morning. Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, as we continue our verse-by-verse study of the book of Ecclesiastes, tackling a couple of really difficult verses this morning, but I pray bringing great encouragement to the people of God. I want to remind you that the words to the songs that we sang this morning have a significant impact on what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying. And as we connect the dots, we find a place of hope and a place of promise only in Christ alone. You know, how a person or how each of us chooses to live our life shows a clear contrast between belief or unbelief, an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty or a rejection thereof, an overwhelmed sense with whatever and however the world is and your own particular issues that you're facing, or the bigger, longer picture teaches us that everything's going to be okay. When we know the truth and it sets us free, there ought to be a significant difference between the way we once were and the way we are how we once lived and how we live today, and yet it is a constant daily battle to live that faith day in and day out in any kind of wholesome way, and it is easy to be lulled into sleep. It's easy to to lose sight of, of that long view. It's easy to be so overwhelmed with the issues of life that we forget the truth that is contained in the Scripture and the amazing relationship that we have with our Heavenly Father. Twenty-one years ago today, at 8.46 in the morning, our lives changed. I shared with a couple of people this morning, how could this 9-11 have happened 21 years ago? Where's the time gone? But even more so, Look at the change that has taken place in these last 21 years. In New York City, in Washington, D.C., in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, we have clear examples of the realities of what the writer of Ecclesiastes will share with us today. It was a beautiful fall day, I remember it like yesterday. The Vice President of Student Development at a Practical Bible College, and the sun was out in full force with bright blue skies. And when I first got word, I thought, no, what a tragic thing. And as the day unraveled over the next couple of hours, we began to see that everything was changing. I find it fascinating, interesting, maddening, and saddening that we, at that particular day and throughout the course of the next months, somehow became a people of God that were invoking the name of God in very public ways, in ways different than than happened on September 10th. 2001. And for some of us, we were lulled into the sleep that it was a nation coming back to God. 
realizing the things that matter most and grasping the brevities of life and the importance of living well, the days, however many they might be, that God allows us to be on this earth. But it wasn't just a matter of weeks or even months that the voice of God somehow got drowned out by our own crazy lives and desires. What we saw happening is a nation that was crying out to God for some kind of mercy. We became a nation that was starting then to turn away from God and find answers under the sun. In fact, it is my belief that it was 9-11 that was the seed for many of the cultural changes that we see in our lives today when a people became more dependent on a government to keep them safe than the sovereign God of the universe who knows the end from the beginning. And I'd love to say that's just the culture and it doesn't impact God's people, but you and I know better, don't we? The context of the wisdom and the Scriptures and the blessings that God has given us if 9-11 teaches us anything, it reminds us that we too can be distracted. And even though we know all of the right things, we can put our faith and confidence easily in all of the wrong things, believing somehow that that is how we achieve any kind of blessing in life. I find it fascinating that's exactly what the writer of Ecclesiastes does. He's been blessed with wisdom the wisest man that ever lived. He had a grasp of reality that escapes most of us. And in spite of all of that, he was lulled into a sleep and a slumber. He was distracted by shining objects and empty, hollow promises to look for some kind of peace and, and satisfaction and hope and promise in things under the sun. And like that writer, and God's people, and a nation, and in the history of the world, it seems like it's too easy to forget the lessons learned and stay there, living out those lessons in everyday life. It so reminds me of the writer in chapter 1, verse 9, what has been will be And what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come hereafter. There's nothing new, and we see it in the writer of Ecclesiastes, and we see it in the last 21 years of of our nation. We see it in our own personal lives when when tragedy or heartache or or questions loom large in our hearts. It's easy to forget all of the things that we know to be true and all of the things that we have learned. And in many ways, in chapter 7, the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes, the Koheleth, the convener of the assembly, kind of changes his trajectory. 
And he closes out, at least in small part, the laments of the first six chapters and seeks to impart wisdom and some of the things that he's learned along the way to pass on to the next generation. And he's keenly aware of the next generation, for he calls upon them in chapter 12 to remember their Creator and the days of their youth. It's hard to believe that there are a lot of people here this morning who have no recollection of 9-11. The kids, it was a passing news story. Those not yet born, it was a tale that is told. There's no remembrance of former things. As we build upon this notion of setting things in order, the writer of Ecclesiastes is is going to impart some wisdom and share some thoughts. And if you think that in chapter 7 it's a bunch of disparate statements that don't make any sense, you're wrong. And if you understand the rest of the context of the book of Ecclesiastes and, and the voices that he uses in trying to figure out life under the sun, whether it be the cynic or the hedonist or the wise sage, he's now trying to tell us that he is come to the end of his life. He's lived a full life. He's done everything that could possibly be done. And he is saying, so let me tell you what I've learned. He's given us glimpses of that in the first six chapters. And now he's going to bring it home in such a pointed fashion that you cannot miss what he's saying. Or can you? If history is any lesson… It's easy for us to miss what he's saying, to put our trust in all the wrong things. I pray that that not be the case. Father, bless us. As we spend some time in Ecclesiastes 7 this morning, though difficult texts and in places much disagreement among the scholars, the expositors. Give us a general understanding and a grasp of the heart of the Koheleth as he, as he imparts truth and wisdom, trying to bring us into a reality that He has lived and, and knows as much as anybody. I especially pray for the young people that are here this morning who even historically on this day have little recollection or understanding of the paradigm shift and seismic changes that took place in Western civilization. They've always known this new normal, and they have nothing to contrast it to. May this wisdom not be lost on the youth. You speak to all of our hearts and lives some sobering realities. May the outcome be glorifying to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We often sing and are taught in this Christian life to make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all of the earth. Sing 
to the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with with singing and know that the Lord, He is God. Listen to this. He has made us, and we are His, and we are His people, and the sheep of His pasture. Stop and think about that for a second. God has made claim to our lives. He has created us in His image. He has a plan for eternity. And for those who believe, we are His people and the sheep of His pasture. So therefore, we can enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise, and it doesn't matter what is happening. That hour, that moment is second in your life. It's the long view, the bigger picture. We're His. Give thanks to Him and bless His name, for the Lord is good, and His steadfast love endures forever. And listen to this, and His faithfulness is to all generations. As we hear this clarion call for worship, as He puts some perspective on the brevities of our life and our hope and promise that is found in the God who created us. He calls us to come with thanksgiving and and with praise and to bless His name and be reminded that He is faithful to all generations. But when we talk about that faithfulness, we come across these points and times in our life that test us and challenge us. We begin to wonder, well, if God is truly faithful, then why is this happening to me, I know most of you don't struggle with that. But some do, and particularly on this day, are in the valley of the shadow of death. They need to be reminded of the long view. They need to be reminded of the promises of God. They need to know the sovereignty of God that we celebrated last week at the Lord's table. God is in control of what, Pastor Jim? Of everything. Well, what does that mean, Pastor Jim? Well, let's try this again. Everything. Well, if it's everything, Pastor Jim, why? I don't think it's wrong to ask that question. I think where things go haywire is where we look for the answers. Under the sun or above the sun? And our hope of glory or in the present and current situation, we remind ourselves of the sovereignty of God where in chapter 3 the writer says, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. And he gives us this illustration that in all of those times, God is on the throne. He has made everything beautiful, verse 11, in his own time, and he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, and also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil, for this is God's gift to man, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. And in the sovereignty of God, the question always comes up, is that simple resignation, there's nothing I can do about it, God is on the throne? Or is that an affirmation, God is good, He is on the throne, He knows the end from the beginning, everything's going to be okay. Both of those things are true. You see, you can believe that He's sovereign, 
But until you resign yourself to embrace that sovereignty, these why questions will continue to plague you for all of your days. Sound doctrine must be accompanied by sound living if we're going to find peace and quiet in the tumultuous times in which we live and in the realities of life under the sun that we all experience. Let me tell you something about life. Life will create more trauma than any one of us can bear in our own particular wisdom. And somehow we must find a place of hope. Somehow we must uncover a a confident expectation that everything is going to be okay. And this writer set himself out to do that same thing. In fact, in this same chapter, verse 23 and 24, a little bit later on in chapter 7, he says, I have tested all by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is afar off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? There are no answers to the question why, except for the sovereignty of God. There are no answers under the sun. Nothing in this world brings lasting happiness. And as he transitions from where he's been in the first six chapters to where he is going, he is going to make a contrast between good and better. And interestingly enough, he never uses the term best, and perhaps it's because he never arrived there, at least until the end of the book. But he's saying these things are good, but there are some things that are better. And if you look in your Bibles in chapter 6, verse 10 through 12, perhaps chapter 7 is answering the questions that he asked in 6.10. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with the one that is stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? He wraps up the first half of his teaching, of his exposition of his life, and he says, in the end of the day, no matter how hard I've tried, I don't know what will happen tomorrow. I don't know how this is all going to turn out. In fact, I can't know how all of this turns out, and I still have the same questions that I had before. So I believe that as he moves from our Bibles in chapter 6 into chapter 7, he is calling upon those who he has just kind of poured his life out to. He's calling upon them for sober reflection. Based upon everything that I've just told you, and based upon this this reality that none of us have control of anything in our lives, here's some suggestion. When it comes to sober reflection and reflection on the realities of life, especially during painful times, we as a people, we as individuals will do everything we can to avoid such sober reflection. 
And we avoid it because there's nothing that we can do about it, and it creates more questions than it does answers, and, and it takes us to this place where we have to say, I don't know about tomorrow. I just don't know. But we've been told by the writer, there's a time and a season for everything under the heaven, and it is God who appoints those times and seasons. And yet somehow that's still not enough. David Gibson and reflecting on chapter 7 and, and some of the things that the, the writer is going to address says, when we realize that we cannot explain everything in life, that the people we love will become ill and die, we don't know why God could allow such a thing to happen, once we accept that there is injustice and oppression, or we have to face the fact that there is throbbing hurt at the core of our very soul that won't go away, one option is to try to flee reality and numb the pain to avoid the problems. And we have become masters at avoiding sober reflection. Some of your lives would, would, would go to pieces if we took your phone away and you couldn't do Instagram. So to avoid the pain, we party as hard as we can. We laugh as loud and as often as possible. We drink ourselves into oblivion, and we live in the past or a land of make-believe instead of the present. We plan an escape route. And if that doesn't work, in our cancel culture, we blame everybody else for how our life turned out, including God. Question that we asked last week resonates this week as well. How's that working out for you? Let me tell you about the wisest man who ever lived. It wasn't working out. So we said, hey, listen, we got to switch gears a little bit. That's empty and that's vain and that's futile and a good name, verse one, is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of faith the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools, and this also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not be quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. And in the day of prosperity, be joyful. 
And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. He's not done. For another six chapters, he will wrestle with these various voices that he uses. He's not done in that from this point forward, it's all going to be happy and promising and full of blessing. No, he will struggle some more as he tells us his tale, and then he will reach a conclusion that we know well, at least in our minds. And his desire as he shares all of this is that we might know it well in our lives. So he says a good name is better than precious ointments, a lasting legacy, a a, a reputation, a good name, a a, a man, a woman of character, someone who lives life well, who lives life God's way, who has a a witness and a testimony in the community about their, their goodness. No, no one is perfect. But he's saying, listen, and all of the things that you chase under heaven, a good name is better than precious ointment. Maybe not the best, but it's better than the finest luxuries of life. And he knew about those luxuries. Go back to chapter 2. Remember what he said? And whatever my heart desired, I kept not from them. He was the wealthiest, wisest, most well-known person in the world. And here he tells us a good name. How you live is better than all of those things. Sometimes we use the word reputation, it leads us down a dangerous path. Be careful of reputations. John Wooden, the great Hall of Fame basketball coach, reminded his basketball players all the time, your reputation is who people think you are. Your character is who you really are. Make and take more time honing your character than being concerned about your reputation. There's some wisdom in that. I think Solomon is saying that. Sharpen your character. Be an upright, upstanding, godly man or woman. It is better than whatever else this world offers. And the day of death is better than the day of birth. He says some very troubling things about life and death and birth. If you go back into chapter 4, verse 2, he makes the first statement that he thought the dead who were already dead were more fortunate than the living who were still alive because they didn't have to deal with this crazy life under the sun. In a more pointed way, he says in chapter 6, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. The child comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in its darkness his name is covered. He is spared from this turmoil and this struggle and this wrestling under the Son. As he's tested out everything else, he draws a conclusion that it's better not to try and be satisfied with the things of the world under the sun, but, but to live a godly and upright, a, a, a life of character 
that your life counts, that it means something, that it makes a statement. And then he says, in a really interesting kind of way, the day of death and the day of birth. And here's what he's saying. Some of you remember the day in which you took your first child home from the hospital. If you don't remember it, let me explain and describe it to you. Everything was great. God has blessed us with a son or a daughter. And you take this little bundle, and you leave the hospital doors, and you say, what am I doing? I have no idea how to do this. I didn't think this through. What what do I do now? All parents have been there at one point or another. And you know you're not equipped for the job. But that child is a child of potential. That child can, can grow up and be something and, and, and do something, and their whole life is in front of you. Almost as if he's saying, I was that child once, and now I'm an aged man. But I have a better grasp on life than I had when I was a child. Because death has a way of defining the things that matter most. Do you ever see how that works? Perhaps that's why he says in in chapter 12, remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Youth are looking forward to all the pleasantness of life and all the opportunities provided, and the world is theirs for the taking. But as you age and as you gray and as you stand and look in that mirror and realize that things are changing quickly, there's a sobering reality that comes with the brevity of days that God blesses you with on this earth. So the day of death is better than the day of birth because it kind of sorts things out and helps us to find a perspective. He says, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind. This house, this this place that he speaks of is, is where celebrations would take place. And he says, it's better to go to this gathering place, perhaps, in reference to the very place that all of these people had gathered, that he convened this assembly to speak this wisdom into their life. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. Perhaps we could say better to the funeral than the wedding reception, because you don't learn anything at a wedding reception, but at a funeral, it brings the realities of life to a palpable level. And then he says, death is the end of all mankind. He's told us in chapter 5 to guard our steps when we go into the house of God. Chapter 7, he says, listen well when you go to the house of mourning. There are lessons to be learned that you must learn. And it's better than the house of feasting. And the living will lay it to heart when they're reminded 
of death's reality. I've said it my whole ministry. There are opportunities afforded to you at a funeral that people will give you at no other time in their life. Because somehow built inside of each one of us, as we look up at the casket, is this reminder, that's you someday. Someone said, that's not a bad reminder. It's not a bad thing to go to the house of mourning. It's not a a bad thing to be reminded. It's kind of centering when you understand the brevities of life that impact our mind and our emotions and our will and ultimately our decision-making. Tremper Longman commenting on this text says, the idea is that the living should remember to live in the light of death because no one can escape that final destiny. But isn't it interesting as we look at our world today how desperate they are looking for an off-ramp, an escape from reality, and not ever wanting to deal with the realities of the brevity of life and death. Sometimes that's, that's us. Verse 3, he says, sorrow is better than laughter. Sorrow comes by living in reality. Laughter is a result of living in denial. Some laughter to dull the pain of life, some frivolity, some celebration to somehow take the edge off of the reality that we're all going to die someday. But by the sadness of face, the heart is made glad. There's a true life lesson to learn at a funeral. There's a true change that can take place when we realize that in spite of fame, we will not live forever. Maybe you know that song. Nobody lives forever. I'm not sure I'd want to on this earth. How about you? I'm a little disappointed. Expected a little bit more. As he talks about this and as he focuses on the reality of death, he's saying, hey, listen, there's a payday coming, all right? Everyone's going to die. Pay attention and allow that to speak the truth into your heart and the reality into your life. For the heart of the wise is in the heart, house of, of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Death is an evangelist. It screams to every one of us, it is appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment. It's kind of what Solomon says in the end of his book. Every deed will be called into question, and you all will die. Dead, dead, dead. Sobering reality indeed. You know, when I think of the, the house of mourning and the house of mirth, I can't help but think of the seismic changes that have taken place in evangelicalism over the years, where we come to church to feel good. Pastor, tell me something pleasing to my ears. Let's do some happy, clappy stuff so I can dance around and, and, and just, just be happy. Go, oh, that Pastor Jim, me, everything's heavy with him. Life is heavy, and the end is coming, so we need to do something about that, yes? Better is the house of mourning. Same is true with our worship songs. They're so vacuous at times. They don't say a thing. 
Maybe we too are looking for an off-ramp from reality. What He's calling us to is a life of depth, to really think about the hard things and the reality of death, and to learn from that the things that are most important. And death, depth is the characteristic of a person who lives in light of the reality that their life will be required of them. They too must go to the house of mourning. Verse 5, it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. I could tell you what you want to hear, but I wouldn't be doing you any favors. Or we can dig into the book and tell you what's so and pray that God uses it for His glory. We don't like the heaviness of church. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. How are you doing with that? It's better to hear the rebuke, the wise, than to hear the song of the fool. Proverbs tells us, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Just entertain me. Tell me life's good. Don't talk about the hard things. I, uh, that just depresses me, Pastor Jim. Better to go to the house of mourning and be depressed and make some changes in your life than to join the party of all the other paraded people who are trying to find the same thing you're looking for, but they're looking in all the wrong places. Better to go to the house of mourning. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. It makes a lot of noise. There's no substance to it. It doesn't fix anything. Interestingly enough, in the original language, there's so many puns and word plays that, that the writer uses, it doesn't always translate into the, into, into the, the English that we're reading in, in our text of Scripture. But the truth of the matter is, in essence, he's saying, nettles under a kettle make a lot of noise, but it's no substance to it whatsoever. If you, if you ever make a campfire and you use some, some pine and it snaps and it crackles, and we love to hear that sound, but it burns so fast and not a lot of, not a lot of heat that comes from it. That is the house of laughter. That is the house of dancing. That is the, the house of the fools rushing, promising all of the things that, that they offer, but it's empty. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness. Perhaps borrowing from chapter 6 and even prior to that, chapter 5, or when he talks about the riches and the material gain that he found in life. And then he looked at the world, and he saw that there are people who were taking advantage of other people, and, and then he lamented even his own treasure, saying that I can make a bad deal, and it can be all gone tomorrow, or someone can, can take advantage of me and, and, and rob me blind. And he says, I can't even sleep at night, because that's where I put all of my hope and trust in that, in that stuff. And in a second, in a second, it can be gone. The oppression drives the wise into madness. And a bribe corrupts the heart. Those shiny things that we talked about. Isn't it amazing as soon as we gain perspective, this little shiny object 
is shown to us and it sparkles and we say, oh yeah, I forgot about that. It's warning us of the dangers of of putting all of our trust in the things on this earth. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Better to be a finisher than a fancier. What does that mean? Some of you are dreamers who never get off the blocks and do anything. He's saying you could dream all you want, and you can convince yourself all you want if you could have a little bit more and do a little bit more and be a little bit more, then surely you would be happy. He says that's the song of the fools. It's not going to happen. It cannot happen. Better is the end of a thing than it's beginning. Uh, See this thing through. Finish well. And he tells us in chapter 12 how to finish well. He tells us that we need to take the long view. We need to take the long view in the sense that we are patient in our spirit, no matter what the circumstances of life, that we allow it to shape our character, that we keep things in perspective, and that it's far better, far better than the proud in spirit who cannot wait for the results and never consider the cost of their rash commitments. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. I believe we can attach that spirit of anger to the person who is proud in spirit, who can't stand that things don't work out the way they wanted them to work out. Welcome to life. But it's not fair, Pastor Jim. You don't want fair. You don't want fair. Do you know how much God has blessed you in your life? You want fair? Dead in your trespasses and sin. Children of wrath, fit for destruction. Empty lives that leave no lasting mark. Anger lodges in the bosom of fools. It lives there. It resides there. Now listen carefully. He doesn't say anger resides in the voice of a fool. He says anger resides in the bosom of a fool. We masquerade sometimes our anger. And it comes out in different ways. But our anger exposes us for believing that we deserved better than we got. And somehow, in the end of the day, if God is sovereign, He's got to be the one held responsible. That anger that resides deep in our lives will come out some way. And all of us, even some of you whose countenances are so pleasant this morning, can easily get angered when things don't work out your way, just like me. So stop saying, where were the former days, or or why were the former days better than these? Anyone here guilty as charged? Oh, I remember when. Some of you think you want to go back and live your teen years or your 20s over. Are you kidding me? It was hard enough the first time around. Why am I going to do that again? Maybe 
If I could take what I know now and go back, but even then, I don't have the energy at this stage of life. How about you? We want to talk about it all the time. Oh, oh, the good old days. Yeah, First Baptist before Pastor Jim came. Well, let me tell you something. We're the same First Baptist that we were before. A bunch of miserable people who like mourning. Oh, no, we don't like that. We like laughter. That's, that's right. Pastor Jim's the guy that brought mourning to the place. I don't like that at all. Pastor Andrew and I were chatting just briefly before the service. You think this is hard on you? Be on my end for weeks at a time studying stuff like this and getting beat up by the Spirit of God. But I'm better for it. So are you. Oh, why were the former days better than these? It's not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good. An inheritance is good. It's an advantage to those who see the sun, those who live this life with wisdom and, and, and the things that, of, of life and what they provide. And the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. As he wrestles with these things in his life, he is saying, there are good things that come from wisdom, and there are good things that come from the material blessings in life. But to those of us living in a real world, we must see them as an advantage that is fleeting at best, and we must measure them in the context of the reality of death. And even wisdom can fail you, just as money can fail you, and the only advantage is knowledge and preserving Life. The only advantage is taking your wisdom and making that real and understanding what matters most in life. For the person who possesses wisdom and knowledge and has been gifted by God with good things under the sun, life is truly good. These are difficult verses. What I struggle with not just in life, but in interpretation of Scripture as a frustra- frustration. Just, just, just say it. Uh, this is hard to understand. What, what are you trying to communicate here? But if you look at the sum total of what he's saying, it's pretty clear. Death will come upon all of us, and it's time to give some serious consideration to that. And then he warns us, don't be so consumed about controlling death in your life that you forget Consider the work of God. Interestingly enough, in Ecclesiastes, in this particular section, he has gone on for more than 20 verses and hasn't mentioned God once. And now he gets to this verse, and he says, consider God. Now, let's connect it to the first verse and the first four verses to talk about the house of mourning. Isn't it where we have to go to consider God? He's connecting the dots. So where does God fit in all of this? Because He has explained His life in the first six chapters as under the sun. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? Hey, I've tried to make sense of this, and I'm empty. I got nothing. So maybe it's time to consider God. We tend to do that 
we face the stark reality of death, and yet we're still trying to run away. Gibson again says, superficiality is the mark of an escapist who is living in denial. We're masters at it. The wisest man in the world was a master at it. When he reconciled all of these things and looked at the brevity of life, there was a little bit of clarity that came to him, and the clarity was not about how life works or why it works that way. The clarity is this is beyond my grasp and beyond my control, and it's time for me to consider God. He says this about that. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. Isn't that where we started in Psalm 100? Make a joyful noise to the Lord. He said it a couple of times in the text already. Just enjoy the simple things of the day. And in the day of adversity, consider. Consider what? The work of God. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. God is on the throne. He is sovereign, and He has appointed one season and another season, and they're not the same season, but it is at a time and a place of His appointing for His glory. And to remind us that there's nothing under the sun that is of any lasting significance, so He screams, pay attention for better it is to go to the house of mourning. Took him a long time. He lived the fullness of his life, and he still can't figure out why. But at least he's offering a consideration to things above the sun. He's not home free. He comes in and out of this reality. He'll go back to where he was before. David Hubbard, commenting on verse 14, says, better it is to let God's sovereignty do its thing than spend our days flushed with anger and aglow with indignation. He says, be patient and not angry. Better it is to just let God's sovereignty do its thing. Can I, can I share something with you? Even if you don't let it do its thing, it will do its thing, because that's what sovereignty is, right? Stop fighting. Stop fighting it. Learn to be thankful and understand the end of the matter. After everything has been heard, fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of God. Let me throw a phrase that we said over and over and over again for months. Maybe you'll remember it. Coram Dale. Every second every minute, every hour, and every day of my life is under the divine sovereignty of my King. I must live according to that reality, understanding that it's not going to last forever, and I must fear God and keep His commandments. So, for those of you caught up we're stuck in this notion that somehow God owes you something different. 
remind you of the words that you sang this morning and underscore the importance of guarding your steps when you come to the house of God. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful. And my song shall ever be. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. And when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the temper, tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's painful, fearful path, for my love is often cold, and He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. So what is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls belong to Him. Who holds our day within His hand? What comes apart from His command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. Oh, sing hallelujah. Our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing hallelujah. Now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death. So better to go to the house of mourning, to gain a perspective on everything that you're chasing under the sun provides no comfort. There is no comfort out of a God who sits in heaven, who knows the end from the beginning, and works all things after the counsel of His will, good, bad, or indifferent. And there's nothing better than to know that He has made us and we are the sheep of His pasture. So we come into His courts with thanksgiving. It is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord. Isn't it funny that it takes death to bring us to that place? <laughs> Father, bless us. Challenge us, encourage us. And be patient with us because there's been plenty of things in our lives that have reminded us of this reality. Whether it's 21 years ago, 9-11, whether it's the essence of life over the last 21 years, whether it's the valley of the shadow of death that we find ourselves in today, just to guard our steps when we come into the house of the Lord to come to grips with the brevity of life, the reality of death, and to be blessed with the wisdom and knowledge 
that equips us to fear you and keep your commandments all the days of our life. May it be so. Both in this hour, throughout our week and our month and our years, until the time that we see you face to face. Bless us and hold us fast, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.